Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are headed to medieval Germany today to talk about a woman who was way, way, way ahead of her time. She was Hildegard of Bingen, also known as Hildegard von Bingen, and as Sybil of the Rhine. So long-time listeners, as we tell this story, will probably notice some similarities between her and past podcast subject Marjorie Kemp, who was another Christian mystic who lived in medieval Europe. Back when we recorded that episode about Marjorie Kemp, which was actually, I think, the first episode that I researched for the show when Holly and I came on, I really intended to do kind of a mini-series on women mystics in the medieval world because a lot of their lives are really super interesting. And listening to uh, or learning about them can really dispel some of the misconceptions that a lot of folks have about the medieval world and about women's place specifically in the medieval world. Uh, Right, that was three years ago. (laughs) Um. Our recent episode on the history of the English language got me thinking about the medieval world again, though. So it seemed like a good time to come back and revisit this uh, this world of, of women in the church in medieval Europe. Hildegard was born in 1098 in Franconia, which is now a region in Germany. Her parents were Hildebert and Mechthilde. Hildebert was a lesser noble and Hildegard was their 10th, count them 10, 10th child. Her health was fragile, and as early as age three, Hildegard was experiencing religious visions. While Hildegard was still very young, her parents gave her to the church. According to some sources, including my medieval literature professor, this was meant to be part of her parents' tithe. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, tithing is the practice of giving 10% of everything that you earn or produce to the church. It's not totally clear whether Hildegard, who by her own account was only about eight years old when this, uh, when she entered religious instruction, had a say in the matter. She is technically one tenth of their produced children, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I, it's one of those things where I don't think there is a record of her parents saying, this is part of our tithe. Right. But the fact that she's reported to be their tenth child and she then entered religious instruction and apparently tithing children was a thing that people did. Uh, it all co- kind of comes together to be Hildegard was given to the church as part of her parents' tithe. And the next few years of her life are a little bit fuzzy as well. At some point, she met another religiously inclined young woman, Jutta von Sponheim, who was about six years her senior. And Jutta was also of noble birth and of a little higher station than Hildegard. Jutta eventually became Hildegard's teacher and mentor. Eventually, Hildegard and Jutta wound up at the Benedictine Monastery at Disabodenburg, which is near the confluence of the Nea River and one of its tributaries. This is about 60 miles or 100 kilometers southwest of Frankfurt. Named after the 7th century Irish monk Disabod, Disabodenburg had grown into a really important center of religious life in the area, and it had become home to a Benedictine monastery in 1108. In 1112, Yuta was enclosed as an anchoress at the monastery. Anchoresses were women who, for religious reasons, essentially sealed themselves up in a very small cell for life. Men who did this were called anchorites, although most people who did it were women. 
Often, an anchoress was literally walled in, with a wall gradually being built around her that had a small window that let food be passed in and out, as well as a chamber pot. And depending on the size and configuration of the cell, it may have had additional windows as well to see directly into the sanctuary if one had joined the cell, or just to let in light. Being an anchoress was a lot like following the life of a religious hermit, but instead of retreating to a remote place for a life of solitude and prayer, an anchoress would be shut into a wall of a comparatively populated place like a church, a monastery, or occasionally a town. By the time Hildegard lived, anchoresses had to get official permission from the church to do this, and the ceremony for enclosing an anchoress had a lot in common with the funeral, including the anchoress receiving last rites. Basically, the anchoress was leaving her worldly life behind for one that was focused exclusively on religious devotion and study. The life of anchorites and anchoresses was meant to be one devoted strictly to reflection, penance, study, and prayer. Most of the time, it was also a lifelong commitment, although there were some who eventually left their cells. In Disabodenburg, Hildegard and a servant lived with Yuta in her hermitage, Yuta taught Hildegard Latin, along with the recitations and observations that were required as part of their order. Hildegard's early musical education probably came from Yuta as well. And because Yuta's hermitage was physically connected to the monastery there, Hildegard would have also been immersed in all of the spiritual and religious teachings and practices that were conducted within it. Yuta definitely took a more ascetic and strict approach to her own spiritual life than Hildegard did. Apart from committing to be an anchoress for life, Yuta also abstained from meat and periodically abstained from all food entirely. Throughout her life, she continually increased the number of hours a day she spent in study, penance, and prayer. And she also practiced self-flagellation as penance. Hildegard, while not taking quite the same approach in terms of deprivation and self-flagellation, did interpret illnesses as a punishment from God for not following his instructions. And that's actually a belief that would continue throughout her life. Gradually, other young noble women were sent to Utah to study as well. So the Benedictine monastery became home to a community of nuns. And from within her cell, Utah became its magistra or its teacher and leader. When Yuta died in 1136 at the age of 44, she and Hildegard had been at Disabodenburg for 24 years. At least eight other women had come to the monastery to live and study with them. And Hildegard, who at that point was 38, was elected to take Yuta's place as the magistra. About three years after Yuta's death, Hildegard, whose visions had continued since her childhood, had a particularly powerful experience in the form of both a vision and a voice from the heavens. In her record of it, the voice said to her, O fragile human, ashes of ashes and filth of filth, say and write what you see and hear, but since you are timid in speaking and simple in expounding and untaught in writing, speak and write these things not by a human mouth and not by the understanding of human invention and not by the requirements of human composition, but as you see and hear them on high in the heavenly places in the wonders of God. Explain these things in such a way that the hearer, receiving the words of his instructor, may expound them in the those words, according to that will, vision, and instruction. 
Thus, therefore, O humans, speak these things that you see and hear, and write them not by yourself or any other human being, but by the will of him who knows, sees, and disposes all things in the secrets of his mysteries. So sort of, I'm going to impart and dictate to you revelations that you're going to write down exactly as you experience them. And in the same experience, she also had a more revelatory experience. Uh, and she wrote of that saying, quote, Immediately, I knew the meaning of the exposition of the scriptures, namely the Psalter, the Gospel, and other Catholic volumes of both the Old and New Testaments, though I did not have the interpretation of the words of their texts or the division of the syllables or the knowledge of cases or tenses. At first, Hildegard resisted this call. She didn't think she was up to the task. She wasn't confident in her ability to write or to speak. Soon she became ill, something she thought she brought on herself by not following God's command. So eventually she embarked on just what the vision had instructed her to do. And this would eventually turn her into someone with a much broader influence than just the religious community at Disabodenburg, which we'll talk about after a sponsor break. For most of Hildegard's adult life, until she reached her early 40s, she had confided her visions in only one person, which was Yuta. Eventually, Yuta had told a monk named Volmar about the visions, and after a time, Volmar basically became Hildegard's secretary and editor. She would write her visions down on a wax tablet and hand them off to Volmar, who would refine their spelling and their grammar. Even though Hildegard was never confident in her writing skills, her written works are actually full of really complex ideas and thoughts. After the vision commanding her to write down her visions, the Archbishop of Mines learned about Hildegard's visions and prophecies, and he convened a group of theologians to determine whether they were legitimate or heretical. And ultimately, they decided that her visions were authentic, and they allowed Volmar to officially help her with her work. Hildegard really wanted this work to be taken seriously. This was at a time when various fringe groups were kind of splintering off from the Catholic Church, and all kinds of people with all kinds of teachings were attracting large followings. Hildegard really didn't like this. She thought all of these schisms and splinter groups were going to harm the church. So she wrote to St. Bernard of Clairvaux in the hope of getting her teachings officially sanctioned by the church. He eventually brought her to the attention of Pope Eugenius, also known as Pope Eugene III, who encouraged her to continue on with what she was doing. And in 1147, he gave her the authority to speak in public and to write on theological matters, which was extremely rare for a woman. Hildegard's first book, finished following this endorsement by the Pope, was called Scivius, taken from the Latin phrase... Scito vias domini, or know the ways of the Lord. It was completed around 1151, and it describes many of her visions and also offers apocalyptic prophecies. And perhaps in reference to her own young life, it records one vision that makes it quite clear that parents may only give their child up for a holy life with that child's informed consent. In some translations, that's literally the title of that passage. Like, <laughs> You may only give up your child to the Lord with the child's informed consent. At about the same time as she finished Scivius, Hildegard also moved her community. She and the nuns left Disabodenburg. They settled in a cloister that had been built for them near Bingen, which is where her name, Hildegard of Bingen, eventually came from. This wasn't a particularly popular decision at the monastery at Disabodenburg. There are a lot of likely reasons for why Hildegard decided to do it. 
One was that she was really dissatisfied with how the Benedictine community at at Disembonenberg had been living. She thought their lifestyle was excessive, and she was really concerned that schisms within and outside the community were going to tear it apart. Another was that word of Hildegard's visions and works had been spreading for a decade at this point. More and more noble women had come to Disabodenberg to take holy orders and study with her. And the monks were not too happy about giving up progressively more space and influence in favor of this influx of women. And a third reason was that she had been directed by God to move them. And when she didn't immediately do it, she had fallen ill. She continued writing and teaching extensively. Her other two major revelatory works are Liber Vitae Meritorum and Liber Divinorum Operum, or Book of Life's Merits and Book of Divine Works. She also wrote extensively about medicine and nature, although unlike her other works, these weren't based on religious revelations or visions. They were based on her own study and reflection and on her practice as a healer. These works include Physica, Causae et Curae, and Liber Subtilatum. Uh, That last one is the book of subtleties of the diverse nature of things. These medical writings draw from the Greek ideas of elements and humors, as well as the idea of innate healing powers found within inanimate objects. Her medical writings, like her spiritual ones, really stress the need for humans to approach life through a balance of science, religion, and art, with science and art both, like religion, coming from God. Hildegard was no stranger to writing history either. She actually wrote a biography of St. Disabod. Uh, that was the one that the uh, religious community had been named for that she had left previously. Seventy-seven lyric poems are attributed to her along with their music, so essentially hymns that she wrote and composed. There are definitely composers in the West who lived before she did, but she's really the first one that we also have biographical details on. Although she never seems to have created artwork on her own, there are pieces of visual art that exist today that are based on her descriptions. And she wrote extensive letters. About 145 of them still exist today. And some of them are to the most powerful religious and secular leaders who were alive at the time. Many of them reveal themselves to be part of an ongoing correspondence. This is not like there were 145 unanswered letters of some kind of kook. Like they were letters that she wrote as part of guidance that she was giving to people that the people were receiving. Uh, the recipients of her letters include popes, kings, abbots, friars, and whole communities of monks and nuns. There are also more than 50 sermons that survive, and a lot of them follow the same themes as the letters she was writing. It's really clear from reading her letters and her sermons that as she got older, a lot of the timidity and uncertainty that she had carried about her abilities and her use of language were replaced by a more com- uh, a more confident and assertive way of approaching things. She also wrote repeated warnings to the monks of Disabodenberg, warning them that their excesses and the schisms within the religious community were going to bring about their ruin. This turned out to be quite prescient. Uh, fractures in the religious community actually led to armed struggles. In the 13th century, the monastery was converted into a fortress. And by the end of that century, it lay in ruins, some of which still exist today. Although many of Hildegard's writings take a distinctly, innately feminine approach to their descriptions of her visions and her relationship with God, uh, some of these are actually descriptions that border on coming off as sexual, nothing was ever considered to be heretical. 
Her descriptions are very rich and vivid and very poetic. And uh, as we talked about, it's been a while now, but as we talked about in our episode of, of Marjorie Campbell, a lot of times writings of this sort were viewed as being heresy, but hers were actually really well accepted. She was, in fact, admired and respected all over Germany during her life. The very first biography written of her referred to her as a saint, and she was considered a local saint in parts of Germany for centuries before being recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church. In addition to all her writings and teaching her community of nuns, Hildegard also traveled extensively around Germany, uh, preaching about the revelations from her visions. In 1163, she founded a second convent. And all of this, the extensive writing and teaching, having her teachings accepted by the church as a whole, her her leadership, the medical writing, being allowed to go out and speak in public about theology, were extremely rare for a woman living in the 12th century in Europe. Basically, if she had lived a few hundred years later and been male, people probably would have called her a Renaissance man. We will talk about more about her legacy uh, after a quick break from a sponsor. So we've been talking about how I used Squarespace.com to make my wedding website, and it's been an awesome experience. And now there are thorough instructions for all the people coming from all the potential places they could be coming from to get to the wedding. I'll be putting up stuff for the schedule and things that are for the for the like the wedding party to know what what's up on the day, like all kinds of stuff like that. All of it is extremely easy. It's all extremely intuitive. Tools are easy to use. And if you sign up for a year, which I did, you get a free domain name. So to start your free trial today, go to Squarespace.com. And then when you decide to to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Squarespace.com for a free trial and then the offer code HISTORY for 10% off your first purchase. And now we'll get back to our story. Hildegard of Bingen died following an illness at her monastery on September 17th, 1179. While she was extremely prominent in her, in her time, especially considering her gender, and she was immediately revered as a local saint, academic and greater public interests in her life have waxed and waned over the centuries since then. Most recently, uh, academic interest in Hildegard started to revive in the 1960s with the publication of German-language editions of her letters and songs. This also ran parallel to the second wave of the feminist movement in the United States. Hildegard's writings about women and her being able to accomplish such a high degree of renown and authority, uh, especially in comparison to most women of her time, made her a popular figure in the feminist movement. A lot of the things she actually wrote, though, wouldn't be considered particularly feminist today, as we understand the term. She definitely wrote about women as being the weaker sex and about herself as being unqualified to do a lot of what she was doing because she was a woman. She also recorded visions that detailed why women, for example, should be able to talk about God and God's work, but should not be able to be priests. So a lot of people sort of position her as being a a feminist for her time. Translations of large bodies of her work into English didn't actually happen until 1982, and her popularity really started to spike in the United States in the 1990s because her mysticism and the elements of her life and work that could be considered feminist fit in well with the New Age movement, which was popular at the time. A big part of this was her running theme that creation was the work of God, and so it is the work of humanity to care for it. She also wrote a lot about things being connected to God. 
From Scivius, she wrote, quote, All living creatures are sparks from the radiation of God's brilliance, and these sparks emerge from God like the rays of the sun. If God did not give off these sparks, how would the divine flame become fully visible? It sounds like something that would be on, like, a poster with a beautiful sunset on it. In, in watercolors. Uh, in, in watercolors in a in a store that sells, uh, like, New Age books and supplies. And that it might actually, there might actually be such a poster. Like, <laughs> just a lot of the things that she wrote uh, have that kind of, uh, like, warm, feel-good kind of focus. Uh, today, there have been editions of huge chunks in her work made available in multiple languages. And in addition to that, people have written novels uh, about her as a character, and there are numerous audio recordings of her songs. Pope Benedict XVI proclaimed her to be a saint on May 10th, 2012, and proclaimed her as a doctor of the Universal Church on October 7th, 2012. Doctor of the Universal Church is a title given to saints whose writings are significant and are useful to people in any age of the church. This basically means her spiritual writings are viewed as bearing the same importance as those of St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, St. Bede the Venerable, and St. John of the Cross, among others. Her feast day is the 17th of September. I think she's one of only four female doctors of the Universal Church. There may actually be one more that's been named since then, but I think there's only been one uh, doctor of the Universal Church named at all since she was in 2012. Um, so yeah, she is, she's so interesting to me. One, the whole idea of anchoresses is really interesting to me. And there are other more prominent, uh, anchoresses than Yuta. <laughs> so maybe another three more years from now in this mini series that's going to play out over ages, go. apparently I will, I will do an episode. <laughs> <laughs> One of the anchoresses, because they are fascinating to me. I, um, I see the appeal for you of anchoresses. Since uh-huh. you, you are a woman who really values moments of solitude. Yep. I could see where you would be very fascinated and charmed by thinking about that whole concept. Yeah, they they are very interesting. And a lot of them, like I read an article that was sort of a, it was not a scholarly article. It was basically somebody meditating on how kind of cool and interesting it is that during the medieval period, if you were a weird person, especially a weird woman who just wanted to be by yourself and never talk to anyone, there was this option for you. And I don't know that that's like actually an accurate reflection of what life as an as an anchoress was like, but I was like, yeah, that, I can see how uh, that that would appeal to some people. Um and then, of course, there are the people who would like try to figure out a medical explanation for Hildegard's visions. And uh, I read one article that was like, most historians today agree that she was uh, suffering from migraines. And I was like, this is literally the only reference to migraines in everything that I read right. about Hildegard to research this. Most historians that I think might think things. <laughs> yeah. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I did. This is from, uh, this is from TW. But not me. Those are my initials also. I did not write this myself. And, uh, uh, TW writes with a, a correction to a listener mail we read previously. He says, I just finished listening to Robert Smalls part one. And during your listener feedback, you mentioned a civil engineering student that stated that surveyors are not wrong. That statement is not true. I am a surveyor and performing subpar work is punishable by having your license revoked. 
I think what he was referring to was when the Western Frontier was open for settlement, all the land was owned by the government. The General Land Office, under directive from Congress, appointed a surveyor to perform surveys of a territory prior to sale. Many surveyors and deputy surveyors did outstanding work. However, many did not. Land was sold from the GLO to private citizens, quote, as is no warranty, based on uh, a plat submitted by the surveyor or his deputy. So to avoid land claims, the federal government stated that all original government surveys are free of any and all errors, whether it was true or not. Once a territory achieves statehood, boundary disputes are a problem for the states to deal with. That was why each state hired their own surveyor, and then after a lot of muscle flexing, they eventually chose the line as laid out by the federal surveyor to put an end to the dispute. This is the condensed version. If you're interested in this facet of history, read the Manual of Survey Instructions published by the Bureau of Land Management. It describes in more detail the role of the government land surveyor. Sorry for writing a small novel, but we surveyors are sticklers for details. I enjoy the podcast tremendously, as it makes these sometimes long days Go by just a little faster. Thank you so much, TW, for writing that in. Um, I did not interpret the previous uh, listener's letter as meaning no matter how horrible your work is, it's fine. <laughs> right. Um, but more that, like, if the survey is slightly imprecise, that imprecision is regarded as correct. That could also be uh, totally wrong. So, yeah, I, I don't think that was meant to be like, you can do the worst work ever and there will be no consequence, even though that did sort of come off as the overall moral of <laughs> the honey warm boundary dispute. It's cool. We got letters from people saying they wanted that on a shirt. Anyway, uh, if you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. We're on Tumblr. It's mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you would like to learn about just about anything you can imagine, come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com, which is full of all kinds of awesome articles about everything under the sun. We also have a new series of articles that are rolling out there every week called Ridiculous History. Sometimes these are things we've talked about on the show, sometimes not. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find an archive of every episode we have ever, ever done. You will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have done. You will find a newly written list of answers to our most frequently asked questions and, for example, tips about how to find old episodes in the archive. You can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 